Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. And we're live. So welcome to, I think, the third or the fourth Ask Me Anything webinar. Definitely. Um, um, the first one of this quarter, we're in October, which I cannot imagine this year just disappeared. Um, but a very interesting time, obviously, for regenerative agriculture and food. So I'm so happy to have you all here. And I'm very curious about questions. I hope, as we had last time as well, that the, the rest of the audience will help to, uh, to answer them, because obviously I have the great pleasure to interview many people. Doesn't mean I know a lot or everything. People often, assume that basically where can I find funding for that or how do I do that and often I, I just point to to the interviews we did because the experts are definitely in this case on the ground so to start with a short presentation on and I will share my screen just a bit of background of where we are what we're doing and how um, so I will open that and that also means that I cannot um, allow people in anymore so that's going to be interesting for a few minutes so there might be some angry people Anyway, welcome to the Ask Me Anything webinar of today, the 13th of October. Um, I'm the host of the podcast, Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food, where I have the great pleasure to interview anybody from farmers on the ground to fund managers, to large asset managers, scientists, um, nutrient density researchers, and everything in the middle. If you are not listening, you can definitely find them um, in your podcast app, uh, basically searching for Investing in Regenerative Agriculture. We chose a very um, inspirational name, but very lucky looking back because it's very easy to find. They were one of the few if you type that. Um, if you type that, we have done over 100 interviews now the last four years. I think it's October, actually, yeah. So it's exactly four years ago that I started recording these conversations and I've had an incredible amount of fun and, of course, luck to, to interview so many interesting people. Always asking that question, how to put money to work, how to get it back, um, and how to regenerate soils with that money at scale uh, regenerating people, local communities, and ecosystems, and I think we we have been on a nice a nice run, especially this year and also last year. So it's been growing the interest and and the wave just keeps growing. Um, if you haven't been listening, definitely find us here or on YouTube. We have quite a few interviews on YouTube, um, and but of course your favorite podcast app, you should be able to find this. The reason we're here, or the reason why we decided to uh, do an ask another ask me anything is definitely around the course. No worries if you haven't looked at it, but we've launched a video course on investing in regenerative agriculture and food. Basically, you can find it on Gumroad. This is the short link, which is not so easy to remember, but I will also put it in the show notes, um, where we try to share our lessons learned, what have we learned after interviewing 100, more than 100 people and does more than 100 hours of audio of how to put money to work in this sector and basically sharing some of the frameworks we've been using on selecting things, etc. Definitely check it out if you're interested. It's pay what you think it's worth. Um, and it's completely found on YouTube and via Gumroad. What is regenerative agriculture? A lot of people ask that. Uh, I wouldn't say constantly, but I definitely ask that. And it's a very tricky one um, because there's not a very good definition. Um, meaning that this definition I took somewhere from a website. Obviously, if you put it in, you find it. But it's, as my friend even Solovyev would say, it's more a continuum uh, then, well, there the presentation goes. <laughs> uh, 
it's more a continuum than it is a, 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 um, a destination. If you talk to a farmer, I don't think he or she will ever say, I'm a regenerative farmer because I'm done with this journey. No, they are applying regenerative practices. And I think that's, that um, distinction is extremely important. And you can apply a lot more practices or a lot less, uh, but it doesn't mean that there is a, a rule. Or it's not a binary system. You are a regenerative farmer or you're not. What is important to see is the difference between extractive, which is most of the farming we're currently doing, sustainable, which is some of the farming we're doing, and regenerative, which is a very small subset of sustainable. But it's definitely focused on regenerating soils, regenerating sea, actually you see some, some examples in oceans as well. And it's going beyond sustainable. How do we repair what, um, what has gone, what we have destroyed over the past millennia, in many cases, 12,000 years. So it's a nice arrow that I definitely took from Ethan. Um, and there's a lot underneath there. He wrote a great um, article on it, which I will share in the show notes as well, and basically focus on, on these different practices of regenerative agriculture. There are many, but they all come down to covering the soil, using complex rotations in place and time, no or very limited tilling. There's a lot of discussion on that, um, and soil disturbing and the integration of animals. And obviously there's a lot of discussion uh, on that as well. But you see that many of these practices, they come from permaculture, they come from other uh, places, and they, they boil down to three, four, five practices or three, four, I wouldn't say rules, but definitely uh, if you talk to a farmer applying regenerative practices in Costa Rica or in the Netherlands, they will come down to these things. This is a very, very busy slide. Don't try to read it, um, but definitely have a look at the article of Ethan. Uh, he wrote in 2011, so almost 10 years ago, where he uh, basically, this is a very nice map you can use. You can send to somebody, to a farmer and ask, where do you stand on these different things? For instance, fuel for instance, the source of inputs, for instance, your economic sustainability, for instance, your tillage, and it would vary quite a bit. Um, and also the, the second question, where would you like to go? So I'd like to use this actually, we're going to use this more in the podcast as well. So if you want to learn more, look at the article, uh, read some books. David Montgomery has a great book, Kiss the Ground, has a Netflix movie out now. You probably uh, has, have seen it or at least some uh, discussion around it. The book is great as well, Dirt to Soil, is a very interesting one. Richard Perkins on YouTube is a great small-scale farmer, uh, and there's actually a lot more. Judith Swartz just has a new book out, which I still have to read, um, but have a look there and, and basically dive deeper. And obviously, if you want to follow the podcast, feel free as well. And with that, I'm going to stop sharing my screen, see how many people, ah, only one, we have in the waiting room. Um, so with that, just a short introduction into the world of regenerative agriculture and food, which is exploding. You see a lot of large companies coming into the space, which is always interesting. Um, very scary for many, I think, in the space as well, and very necessary from another side. Um, I'm just going to bring in the two questions, and we actually have the two people, I think, um, even in the room if they want to ask them. Um, so I'm first going to bring up Joe... Swart, if you're able to talk, you want to ask your question live or shall I put it in the, I will put it in the chat anyway. I will definitely share the slides. Uh, yeah, we'll share the slides afterwards. They're always the same actually, and it doesn't change too much in the, in the different uh, asking anything once. But anyway, Joe, I'll put your slide in the, or put your question in the chat. And if you want to unmute, you can also ask it live. Great. Um... So we are setting up a, um, a regenerative agri-hub now in Kenya, bringing together, at the, we're starting it off with three um, leading farmers, um, but we have about 30 farmers waiting in the wings, and it's the first agri-hub of a whole chain. There's one plan for Mozambique and so on and so forth. Um, so 
it's all about agglomerating product and also to shift the whole process of um, production towards regenerative stuff. How, what advice could you give or kind of insight could you give, Quinn, on, uh, on just the investment strategy? Um, what have you learned and, and what are the kind of common pitfalls? Thank you. Thank you for the question. It's a very broad one. And the, 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 the silly answer, it's, it depends. In this case, it sounds like it's not a land-based investment. In this case, more um, a food company or processing-based. There are definitely investors out there that have been financing this, for instance, in the coffee space and the chocolate space or the bean space to, to bring or to leave some of this um, um, added value in the country of origin where this is processed. I know that some other investors are starting to look at it. It's not an easy one, um, but I would definitely look, I wouldn't say the investors that are purely focused on, on regen practices, because there are not so many that are, are uh, comfortable with processing or even comfortable with investing in, in Kenya. I would look more at the impact investing space in, in Kenya and definitely add obviously the regenerative practices to, to the deck and to the pitch, but mostly pitch it as a, um, an interesting processing investment, an interesting added value investment that more of the money stays locally. Um, I know, for instance, a very well-known impact investor, Goodwill, um, that uh, Vincent for sure knows, um, is up to their third fund now, mostly technology, has done a lot of MFIs, like microfinance in, um, and a lot of fintech, and have recently made their first agriculture investment in uh, Nigeria, actually a tomato a processing plant to, because Nigeria is one of the biggest tomato producers in Africa and also one of the biggest importers of tomato products. So they invested in a company that's making tomato products in uh, Nigeria and thus replacing import. So you start seeing that some of these um, investors start to look at agriculture and food, but I also know from inside there that it was a very long process to get these fintech investors and to get the company um, comfortable with each other and actually make that investment. I think it took way longer than they normally would take, but they're very happy about their first food and agriculture investment. So I would look more at the impact investment space, the funds that are active in East Africa um, that are maybe comfortable already with some agriculture and, and are interested in that. And the region part, I think, is in this case a nice add-on, but I think you would find a very hard time finding an investor that is comfortable with processing, comfortable um, with, in this case, um, and Nairobi and comfortable with the region part or that's specifically looking for that because I wouldn't know anybody immediately. Although many of these impact funds I know are starting to be more conscious about soil, but it's a journey and many are not there yet, I would say. Sorry, not a very easy answer. Thank you very much. You're quite right. And then we have another question from Marlies, which is a very very deep question, which you can spend quite a bit of time on, but I will put it in the chat if I get the right. And, but you can also ask it or um, basically, I think it, it's about land ownership, but if you want to um, elaborate a bit on it, Marlies, then please, yes. please go. I will elaborate. Um, I'm not sure if uh, people are familiar with the one, two, three business model. You've had uh, lots of interviews with them. Uh, or on the podcast and the last time with the Ask Me Anything I saw people from 123 it's an organization and uh, they do wonderful stuff where they um, go and buy a um, degraded plantation well, it's one of their business models but I'm going to focus on this specific example where they uh, they have a 
funds uh, of an investor and they buy degraded land um, in South America of a plantation and regenerate it to life. Um, and then the plantation is seen as the nucleus. So it's a healthy plantation. They employ local people. And then the surrounding economy also benefits, obviously, because they need nurseries and, and uh, seedlings and there's jobs. Um, but and, um, so my question is twofold. When I looked at the business model, I thought it was very interesting and, and that it was a for-profit um, yeah, a plantation. Um, and then I thought two things. Well, it's money from outside. They go in, they buy a piece of land. Yes, they provide employment, but then they have a profitable uh, company and they sell it to, well, not the local community because they can't buy it, but to another big one percenter. So uh, my question was, how do they see the local community actually benefit from it? And then, um, this is not my question, but it's the follow-up, is uh, I'm working with a pilot program of smallholder farmers to convert them in South America, to convert them to agroforestry. Uh, so I don't want to ask them, obviously, to, to sell their land. But I was thinking, if we have this pilot of like 100 farmers, and I don't know how many hectares, say 2,000 hectares, would it then be... Uh, a good thing or a bad thing to have a one, two, three plantation in the region? Would it be competing with the smallholder farmers because they lack the scale or would it actually be beneficial because of the big plantation in the neighborhood? It will draw, I, I don't know, it will, you will have a bigger market or, yeah, I'm trying to figure out if it makes sense to have a big plantation there uh, uh, for the surrounding community and, and how do they see it uh, in the long run that the plantation itself actually benefits the local community? Yeah. It's a very, very good question. I think it, it touches upon a, a big elephant in the room in many of the, I wouldn't say the earlier models, maybe I mentioned that in the course, but the, the models of buying land, regenerating it and, and selling it because you improve the quality. Um, in this case, it's, it's a shame that Lenny isn't uh, one of the, the employees of, uh, um, of 123 who signed up, but he's not on the call. But I'm def I can definitely ask what they think of that. Um, but the ownership structure is, is absolutely crucial. Like who owns the land? Why um, can come, somebody from outside come in, buy, regenerate and sell and obviously profit from that? And in this case, they're big um, German pension funds. And I think the answer lies in what happens at the sale and how, um, what happens there and in, in what kind of, um, in, this, in this case is in the land buying funds and structures, uh, what happens after. In some cases they're, they're setting up, they have 10 years and, and that's the traditional uh, way of doing many of these things. But many others are starting to look at evergreen structures so they never sell or they're actually, the, the profits are based on uh, basically what comes off the land. And obviously that could be slightly less and you still benefit from sort of internal um, metric that your land is increasing in price, but you're not uh, selling. And we've had a number of discussions on this actually on the podcast um, twice with Thomas Ripple, who is in Germany, very active of basically buying land and getting it off the market and never selling it again. It will be held by a foundation and basically it's, it's cannot be speculatively used anymore. In the Netherlands here in Boeren uh, is very busy with that and buying farms and farmland and getting it off the market. In the US, it's a huge problem because of transition of generations. A lot of farmers are old, like actually in Europe as well. 
And if they sell to a speculator, then obviously the, the pressure on the next generation that comes on the farm is enormous because they have to pay back this enormous fee that they have to borrow somewhere from a bank, etc. So it's, a, and it's, it's an enormous question on land ownership. What do we find fair or not? The first wave of these structures are buying it and, and selling it at some point, farmland LP. I mean, there are a number of these. And I think they're essential for the sector because they, we get to a certain scale that we can start doing agroforestry at thousands and thousands of hectares. But I don't think it's the optimal model. I'm, I'm very interested in this case in transition finance. Like how do you partner with current landowners that, um, and help them through the transition or investing in their transition? But even there, there's a big question on, okay, how do they actually get ownership of that land? Shouldn't it be held by collectives? Shouldn't it be held by the common good? And there, we as society, we have a very big question to answer, like, why can somebody own land? Um, and, and why can somebody else only rent it? And that's something we have to figure out. And it's, I don't know the answer to your second question. Is it good to have a big plantation or not? Um, run by one, two, three, that hopefully is going to be as regenerative as possible. Um, a lot of these structures function as a sort of hub and spokes, meaning they set up a, a demonstration site obviously quite big in many cases, but they work with local farmers as well and try to, to incorporate their, um, their cacao, et cetera, to increase the quality and basically get to a bigger scale. But it's a very, it's a tension. It's a tension between coming in from outside with a lot of money and because one, two, three raised a lot of money and put a lot of money to work. And at the same time, buying very, very degraded plantations that have been run down by previous owners and, and come back to life, which is a good thing, but could it be better or not? That, that's the question. It's, it's not an easy one. And land ownership will run through the regenerative space for as long as we, we haven't figured out what to do there. Because many of land has been stolen, has been taken, has been contracts forced. I mean, if you go into the history of land ownership, it's not a pretty one. And, and you're, we're going to find a lot of, um, especially indigenous peoples that have been moved off the land, off their lands. And they have managed for centuries and for millennia. And somebody came in, got a contract and took it. So it's, uh, it's very, very, very difficult, especially if a lot of money comes from outside. And even if you try to do it the most sustainable, regenerative, uh, socially acceptable possible, you're, you're still probably stepping on toes and probably a discussion needs to be held there. Thank you. Thank you. From what I'm gathering now is I'm just going to look at and cherry pick like, hmm, okay, so they're doing a regenerative farm and they're making a lot of money. Let's do that with our farmers. <laughs> but then, yeah. I think that the, the good thing is they, I mean, to regenerate large pieces of land, we need money. And, and if you are able to raise that from, from pension funds, first of all, the money doesn't, didn't go anywhere else. Being put to work to plant, hopefully, as regener a regenerative system um, as much as possible. But you don't get away from the ownership structure uh, discussion. At some point, it comes up and, and you have to deal with it. I see some, um, uh, obviously, some answers in the chat as well, which is great. Thank you for that. And I will definitely put all of these in the, in the show notes as well. Can you put a link to the plantation purchasing organization that you mentioned? I think it's one, two, three, Marta, but I'm not sure. Let me know if that is. Yeah. So thank you, Jeffrey, for putting it uh, putting it in. We interviewed. Uh, Olivier, who is the COO, and Richard, who is the founder, Richard Falken, re relatively recent. And uh, they've raised quite a bit of money from, uh, from German pension funds and have been on, a, on an investment spree. So I want to open it up to other questions. We have uh, 
an open field. So please, pun intended. So please either put them in the chat uh, and or unmute yourself if you're the first, otherwise it's gonna be a bit of a chaos. There we go, Philip, you're the first. I could see you. Hi, Cohen, thanks a lot for the, for the show. Um, I very specific question is, what's the economic incentive for a farmer to transition regenerative from uh, I I listened to all your podcasts on the transition um, very interesting however there's a lot of questions uh, I, I the way I see it is that when a farmer starts a transition to regenerative probably they're gonna have to sacrifice productivity uh, they're gonna have a lower uh, yield in their in their production so that's a, that would be a negative. And uh, a lot of people, even in the, so for the going to get certified organic has that problem because you have three years of calculated three years to become certified. And at the same time, you're sacrificing yield. So anyway, the only, the only long story short, um, the only way I see that the farmer can get an economic benefit from that is that we, somebody, we help them um, be able to sell their produce directly to the consumer. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below do you have a specific crop in mind in this case your your question or in, in is it a general one just a, just general general yeah because uh, there's oh sorry go ahead okay so that that's the only way i see that they can get an economic uh, advantage which can kind of counter the lower productivity they're going to have for some years before the regenerative benefits kick in. Yeah, and I think it's take out the middle, take out the middleman. Like I think that's road. a good thing in general, but I mean, it depends a bit. Like if you look at at um, a grain farmer like like Benedict, uh, who we did the transition finance series with, um, selling directly for him would be very difficult because you don't go with a few tons of grain to uh, to a farmer's market. Um, I think in terms of returned or in terms of financial in or incentives it really depends where you look if um, if you look at um, for instance almond crops or certain grain crops the incentive is absolutely there to apply more regenerative practices if you look at um, for instance the gap in price between non-organic grains and organic grains in, in the US for instance where there's a huge shortage it definitely makes sense to transition it takes a number of years, so you need finance, or it depends on your bank account, but many need finance to get through those three years. Obviously, it depends how your land is treated. If you have already been um, very selective with spraying and, and very uh, doing a lot of conventional, uh, but very specific agriculture practices, maybe you, your lag time is less. In many cases, there is a, a yield gap and the J-curve goes down. Uh, the question is how far and how deep, and that really depends on the land. So that's very difficult to, to say. If it, the land has been severely degraded, it could take five to 10 years. If the land has been in an okay state, it could take a few years. What we now see um, is that for many 
farmers, it's a combination of things. It's definitely the input costs which are rising, um, the yields which are slowly going down in many places or actually faster going down. So it, it's sort of a necessity if those two lines didn't already meet, they might meet in two or three or five years and it's a necessity to start changing and especially on the input side um, to, to reduce those costs. And if you look now at, um, again, grain, for example, or almonds, um, Jonathan Lindgren just published a study or is publishing a study and is doing a webinar, I think, next week uh, on uh, almond systems in the U.S. and how much more profitable uh, farmers are that are using regenerative practices. He did the same on grain uh, a few years ago, 2018, which is one of the few studies looking at profitability, and saw that they greatly outperformed the, uh, the non-regenerative practices using farmers and also had way less pests, et cetera. So it really, I think it's a game around inputs, costs, and obviously getting higher prices for, if you can, getting higher prices for, for your produce. And in this case, I see funds being set up in the US that are specifically looking at grain. Why? Because they're set there. So they buy conventional land, they help that land through the three years of transition to organic. The prices of organic of grain are somewhere between 100 or 200% compared to the, the conventional one. And they are seeing that with very advanced regenerative practices, they can get to the same yield. They can close the yield gap between conventional and, and, and organic, meaning you get more or less the same yield. In drought years, you get much better yield than your non-organic uh, neighbors, and you get a much better price, and your co input costs are also lower. Your manual might be more, your, you might have some other extra costs, but from, a, let's say, an economic perspective, certain crops are definitely already there in terms of the gap, but it's really, you have to search, you have to find, it could be that certain grain crops are in certain places are not yet there, but if you can get good offtake agreements, which was the conclusion of the transition finance series, like transition finance is great, but more important is to, to get good offtake agreements, even long-term offtake agreements, to, to actually get some security in, in those years where you're applying more cover crops, where you're really going all in um, with regenerative practices, because there might be some shocks and the margins are so thin that it's, it's very difficult. So Benedict is working on that. I hope to, to be able to share some updates soon. Um, and then it's much easier to get transition finance. But you see, for instance, in organic, the Rabobank in the US is experimenting with organic loans to help farmers through those three years. Why? Because they have more costs. They, have less, uh, they don't have the premium yet, but they, their, their soil is in shock. So there's, there's a, a very interesting investment case to close that gap or to bridge that gap uh, but it's going to be specific on crops because almonds are very different compared to olives, very different compared to grapes, very different compared to grain, and very different compared to potatoes. I see some answers also, or some people, um, uh, thank you, I mean, I mean to, uh, to answer that. I will probably put the interview with Jonathan Lindgren where we talked about profitability in uh, the show notes. And I have the link of the webinar somewhere where he's presenting the new study they did on almonds uh, to see the profitability difference between uh, regenerative ones. And they basically looked at the neighbors. So they had the same soil type, the same climate, everything the same except their practices to see what was the profitability or what is the profitability difference. And it is quite large. Uh, at least I've seen the announcement. I haven't read the report yet. I hope that helps, Philippe. I see impact bonds, very interesting. This is a, a bond-like question. Like if you know that in three, four or five years you'll be, or your yield will be comparable or at least very close to, and you can get access to a much more interesting market. In this case, the organic market in many places is very interesting. That is a finance question. Can you help large group of farmers through that transition? 
Um, that's what Pipeline Foods is doing in the U.S. That's what players start to do because it's it's such a, I think it's 1% of the U.S. farmland is certified organic. More than 6% of the sales is organic, which means there's a lot of import. And so there's a huge gap there to, to start supplying more. And in many countries, that's the case. It's, it comes down to a finance question in many, and obviously an operational question as well. Okay, who's next with a question? You can type it, you can unmute if you're quick enough. Cohen, just going back to your, your what I you were saying about the transition, a lot of the farmers there won't transition straight away because they haven't got the finances behind them. And that's a big thing. And a lot of people will stagger that transition over five years. Yeah, of um, course. Which it's I mean, that shock, it's that shock that's 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 going to affect it. Definitely, I think the I wouldn't want to argue that I've, anybody should take uh, finance if you if you can do it slowly and more secure. Definitely, don't shock the system too much uh, because you might be in for a surprise. Um, many, I mean, many of the first generation almost uh, farmers using regenerative practices they've been forced to because they they lost their crop a number of times or they reached the end of their bank account and they couldn't buy uh, inputs anymore i wouldn't suggest that that's the best case I yeah, mean, they, yeah. we, we know the stories and it's great that they did but they also they could have also tipped over and, and basically lost the farm so yeah. I, I would definitely i mean cautious and, and context specific transition is is key and hopefully in the future um, many farmers obviously get their finance through local banks and what we really hope with climate bonds and green bonds is that local banks can raise capital, a cheaper capital, if you are applying a regenerative practices, like if as a farmer that your interest rate or your payments are different if you are applying regenerative practices. And that, that would be very, very interesting. They just raised the first green bond and, and the climate bonds initiative, certified green bond in, in, uh, for an agriculture company in Brazil, Rizoma, which we interviewed and uh, which was greatly oversubscribed, 25 million to apply these practices. So it, it is happening. The market is starting to move, but these are still um, very small, like very small incidents almost in the space where you see this happening. And many farmers have to do it, unfortunately, by themselves because their local bank doesn't know what they're talking about if they say soil practices. Well, most commercial banks won't even look at them at any... No. 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 They already, I mean, already organic is for many, like way too difficult and and it's it's unfortunate but there's going to be a huge role for banks here i i don't i have no doubt okay can i ask something yeah we had robert first who raised his hand because he figured out the, the system in zoom to raise your hand which is great and then i'll go to you Finn. robert please go ahead you have to unmute we cannot hear you we cannot hear you still robert there we are. Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. So, uh, thanks for this. Um, I'm in the process of setting up a feasibility study in Southwest Uganda to uh, build um, uh, a processing uh, center for coffee, which is a very high grade there, but they've no processing facilities. And then uh, I want to start this as a center of excellence. And I've been, I've visited the area, I've looked at the uh, farming and stuff. And um, I think there's a, a possibility of improving their yields in many ways, uh, not just from the coffee, but actually from growing other crops in between the coffee trees. These are all small farmers, uh, usually around one to two hectares, 
there's 3,200 of them. They're in a co-op. Um, and this is money, pin money for them to stop them actually going into the rainforest to hunt for food. Or um, um, So this is very important in terms of protecting the gorillas in the area. Um, but I'm just wondering if anybody here, or you might have some advice as to what type of crops, you know, I'm thinking garlic, I'm thinking herbs and medicinal herbs and spices that could be good cash crops that would grow in between the coffee trees in this highland area that's rich in volcanic soil. Um, so that's a bit of a mouthful. Um, and also- Very specific, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's any uh, funding structures. I, I mean, applied to the Irish government's AADP, which is, um, you know, for, for a grant which is pending at the moment. Maybe there's other countries that we can link with in this type of thing, other EU countries that have similar foreign affairs grants. Happy to talk about that and link with people and do great projects with other people in other countries like I hear somebody from Kenya on, on this call. It would be nice to connect afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. So I think- So to unpack the two questions, uh, to start with the second one, I would definitely look to make it easier financeable. We come back to, to something we've discussed before is to get good offtake agreements, uh, meaning get, get the, the bean to bar or the, the coffee place, the, the bean to cup movement. And there are actually buyers now that start to ask for higher quality and higher quantity as well, um, but get a better price for, and that actually also answers the question somebody asked in the chat, um, what's a good approach and argument to persuade farmers is to pay for quality. And, and that could mean very different things in very different regions or crops. In this case, coffee, there's, there is a market, not as easily accessible as we want to sometimes, but there's definitely a market for higher quality. Um, and so that, that would make everything a lot easier, obviously, if there are interesting uh, offtake agreements there or at least interest, et cetera. In terms of companion crops or cash crops, um, I would ask to the experts like uh, Preta Terra or Renature, uh, the ones that are building these uh, syntropic agroforestry systems around the world, like what makes sense where and why. And in this case, it's a super context specific question that I really don't know if garlic makes sense or not. So I wouldn't go there, but there are people out there that are building these systems and very complex, um, but also focused on cash crops and companion crops and crops that make sense together, um, both because of the soil, but also because of the, the local context of what is uh, sellable. Uh, and what obviously um, builds more resilience uh, in the system. So I would look for, for the right consultants there that, that can help with those systems. Okay, thank you. And then we go to Fenny. If anybody else, please put in the chat uh, if you have any suggestions for, for Robert. Yes, thanks. Yeah, so I'm in, in the begin, at the beginning of uh, my journey to build a solution for uh, transitioning um, farmers to Region Ag. Um, and I, I'm wondering, I mean, a lot is happening, of course, already. So in my exploration, I'm wondering uh, if you have an idea, you guys, um, what, what kind of solutions do we need or need more of? to transition farmers really at scale? We can, we can spend a few hours on that, Fanny. Um, I, thinking about it, what, what we focus on in the podcast, I think that's the, the best answer I can give at least, um, is our two main or three main things. 
One is definitely nutrient density. So it comes back to the quality discussion. Can we show that connection between healthy soil, healthy produce, healthy gut system and healthy people and thus healthy ecosystems? And that would probably get away of a whole superfood discussion. Um, but there is a discussion that we can have on food as medicine. And I think there's a lot to discover there. A lot of very ugly things like we did with Zach Bush. Um, but a lot of very interesting things if we start looking at food as much more than, than just fuel. And there are some very interesting research pieces and very practical research pieces actually of farmers coming out that this carrot is not the same as that carrot. The organic carrot you find in the supermarket or one actually grown in, in very healthy soil are not the same thing. They might look the same, they might have the same color. Um, but if you look under the hood, if you look what they actually have, um, and I think that could unlock a huge amount of consumer demand like if we start to actually treat food as medicine, um, we're not there yet. We, we still need a lot of moving parts. Um, but as one of the big funders in this space um, said to me not so long ago that we're literally in terms of diet, in terms of understanding what food does to us and what the connection is to soil and us, we're in the stone age. Like we have very, very, very little understanding. Uh, you just have to open a diet book to, to see like how far we are from truly understanding that system and truly understanding our gut system, honestly. So that's definitely a huge piece. Like that could unlock so much. Um, maybe not in the coffee space, maybe not in, in some certain specific places, but I think um, if we start seeing what's actually healthy for us and what's not, that could help. Um, second piece is landscape um, size. Like how do we get this discussion from a farm to farm level to a full ecosystem, a watershed? Um, how do we scale it in terms of hectares and acres a lot more and what kind of technology do we need for that to figure out what to plant where and why uh, it's something i hope to do a series on next year i just keep saying it so hopefully it happens um to really dive deep into that uh, question common land is releasing a big piece with kpmg i think in a week or two uh, no in a week actually and on the returns on a landscape size restoration project in spain so there's a lot happening there um, but still, there's not enough discussion, not enough doing. Like, we need to get this to an island scale, to a river system scale, to a watershed, to an ecosystem. Because farm by farm, we're just simply not getting the network effects we need. And then payments, ecosystems, uh, payments for farmers. Like, how do we pay farmers, not just for the food, but for all the other services, which is very difficult, not easy, a lot of moving parts, but a lot happening as well, especially now around carbon. And then the fourth theme we at least focus on is transition finance to finance the above three. And, and that's what we try, really, really try to keep it to, but it's not easy because there's so much happening in this space. So I hope that that sort of answers. We, we go deep in, deeper into that also in the, in the course, obviously. Yeah, great, thanks. And we try to answer the question by what's, what's fast, like what in the next 15 years can really tip the scale and, and why now? Uh, because many other things obviously need to happen around land ownership, et cetera, that we, we've discussed as well. Uh, but they are much slower processes. So we, we decide to include it sometimes, but not fully focus on that. Yeah. I see a lot of questions in the chat, which I will get to. And I see Joram as well waving. So we go to Joram first, and then I'll go to the chat. Good. Thank you, sir, for the discussion um, and answers. I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm very much interested in the how we are able to create a measurement or what tool there are today for measurement and verification that create transparency. We speak about so many stakeholders now, you know, the finance and consumers and, and brands and so on. So how we can, what measures there is today and how can we create transparency, which I think will eventually will, will actually help to scale uh, connected to the previous question. We're able to do it uh, in a good way because obviously consumer 
aiming for more healthy products and, and so on, but uh, there is the issue of trans uh, transparency and there is an issue of uh, also credibility today of certification scheme and all of that uh, that we see on the ground. So interested very much on this area. Yeah, me too. I, I'm, I'm scheduled to do uh, an update interview tomorrow. I'm scheduled. I, I scheduled it. So let's hope it happens tomorrow with Greg Schumacher of Teak Origin, um, who is definitely on the transparency side, quite, um, um, let's say, forward thinking and advanced. And they do a lot of this research in supermarkets, like what's actually in your food, in your grapes, in your tomatoes, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm very much looking forward to checking with him on that, like what has happened since the last time we talked which has been a year, I think, a year plus, and he's been by far the most listened episode we, we ever made. Um, I'm also scheduled to do one with Ben Kittrich, the founder of the Bionutrient Food Association, who really looks at that soil connection as well, and has made a device, which I don't have here, but I bought it, um, to basically measure the nutrient density of food. The big thing missing there is the context. Like I can measure a tomato, which is great. I can measure, measure, do an apple. But if I don't know, I mean, I get a number of numbers, but if I don't know the context, what these numbers actually mean and how an apple could be or should be, or this type of apple, then we sort of get lost in the numbers. So we are really at that stone age phase, but I hope in the next months to do at least, to get from some of the people working at, at the absolute cutting edge of this uh, field to, to get an update where we are what's missing and how many years are we from, uh, from measuring this stuff in the supermarket or actually getting a label and, and seeing, because if you look at, an, like, look at a label and it says tomato, it could mean anything. It could be organic, which obviously has to be certified there, but it doesn't say anything about a nutrient density and, and yeah. we're really early there, but that transparency is gonna be revolutionary. Like it, it would, wouldn't say change the food sector overnight, but it would be a huge shift if we start discussing quality per hectare or quantity of nutrients and start looking at what do you need versus what do I need because we have a different gut system and personalized medicine which a lot of people talk about but they never talk about the food side of things is going to be very interesting and local become very interesting because maybe your gut flora mimics the flora of the soil nearby and thus you're much more able to absorb certain things or not and seasonal etc 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 so it's a it's one of the topics I, I need to dive deeper into, and the short answer is we're not there yet, but we're coming. And if I may say you are looking on the holy gray, which is the end consumer, but maybe the drivers initially will be the government subsidiaries, even or financial uh, programs of the banks. We spoke about the quality of the land that is improving and, and so on. Maybe there will be because consumer takes time. Uh, I think food companies. I, I, my guess is that they're going to be food as medicine companies, very hip maybe at the beginning, very super food focused, but actually with qualitative, qualitative data underneath that, that are going to dive into that and, and show maybe baby food brand. I interviewed one recently that are only using biodynamic products for partly that reason. They might not be able to uh, show it yet and measure it yet, but they have made that choice and, and they see different nutrients and they see different things and they, they promote it as that. And maybe new parents are the first to, to jump on this or maybe athletes or maybe um, people at risk. I mean, we're, we're obviously talking about healthcare a lot these days. So I would, would look there at some niches and maybe people that are in the hospital and, and with certain, I mean, they did some research in the Netherlands actually, I think in the North, um, where they saw that people, they don't know why, but getting local food in the hospitals was shortening their hospital days, which is very interesting from an insurance perspective. Like those things, look for those smaller examples and smaller studies, and, and that might be the beginning of, uh, of this piece. 
I see that Jeffrey had a, has a question. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Thank you, Yuri, I, for your question. Yeah, I just wanted to follow up on the, the point of the food companies and the role of food companies, because I think that a lot of the discussion is how do we grow the food? So on the really the agricultural side of it. But I think it's really important to remember that the structure of the farms, particularly monocultures, are there because the buyer wants large quantities. So I'm wondering, um, you know, from, from a small farmer perspective, and uh, um, I think Malier, um, if I'm pronouncing your name correctly, that you were asking about smallholder farmers and how they can participate in this. I think one of the big questions is who, who's buying the hundred different varieties of food and spices and herbs that are being produced off of a regenerative farm. And it's not just one product, it's not just a, one commodity. And so I think this, this marketing aspect, I'm just wondering if there's, if there's a, uh, if the conversation has gotten to how to uh, incorporate more food companies. Um, I mean, you're mentioning the superfoods and things like that. It's definitely necessary. I'm just wondering how many, uh, if, if there are food companies that are actively participating in this so far. That's uh, a great question. It's, it's sort of the bundling, unbundling and the bundling. I think it's a question that we've actually had, I, I don't remember if Lenny talked about it, of one, two, three, uh, on this, um, on one of the Ask Me Anything webinars. It's something they struggle with because you can only make your agroforestry system so complex that at some point you have too many species and thus you have only a few kilos of everything and thus you cannot sell it. So there's a tension there with complexity of what you would like to do and what you can actually sell in right enough quantities uh, to, to make sense for your market. And there, I think you're gonna see a bundling of farmers getting together, starting some processing together. Um, and you get a, sort of this unbundling and bundling that you constantly see in every sector um, happening. And I think we need to be careful there and, and keep asking those questions, like how complex do you want to have it and what can you actually sell and what are cash crops and whatnot. And I know these discussions are happening in agroforestry. I know that Earthworm Foundation uh, in Indonesia actually set up a processing company to process everything that comes out of uh, some of their pilot forests, which we're obviously scheduled to do a podcast about, which is not happening yet. Um, but they see that as local processing comes into that decentralized, but you have a certain, you need a certain scale um, to, to process the garlic or to process if you want to process that. And that's, that's a tension that many of these, what you see many of these advanced farmers that are using regenerative practices, they start start at some point a processing company for them, their friends, their neighbors, because they have this, some kind of heirloom weed that fits perfectly in their rotation, but nobody wants to buy it. And so they actually figure out how to process it themselves. And there are actually very interesting um, mini processing units coming on the market that, that are like the, the mini grinders. And there, there are interesting things happening there, but there is a tension between um, scale and, and, and economies of scale obviously exist. Um, and so it's, it's not an easy one. And we love to have 25 species in our agroforestry system. But if you can only sell two of them, you're probably going to um, end up focusing a bit more on that. So it's a tension there as we scale this from a few hectares to thousands of hectares. And, and I know it's a tension um, that the large agroforestry players like one, two, three are working on. Like, what can we do more than just the cacao? In terms of quality, what's very interesting is you have a lot of these high, very high-end ones, like in, in terms of cacao, bean to bar, like super specific, um, almost like wine, like really, really focused on a certain year, etc. But what's interesting is that the big players um, that are buying a lot of cacao, 
are starting to look not for that type of quality, but just below that. Like they want higher end uh, cacao and they're willing to pay for that as well. So in some crops, you can see that the market is starting to shift or a reasonable amount of the market is starting to shift towards quality. And that makes the system possible. That makes it possible to focus on quality. And so focus on those crops where there is a premium on quality and it could be certain protein levels. It could be a lot of farmers are incorporating certain species into their rotation in North America. Why? Because there's the artisanal beer movement that is looking for certain things in their beers and is willing to pay for that. And it might be one piece of your rotation, but it might make the whole thing worth it. So it's a puzzle and, and you would love to do it more complex than, than probably you can find buyers for at the moment. And that's what everybody's going through. And with that, I would like to use a few more minutes to actually answer some questions or try to answer some questions in the chat. Um, we go back a bit. I saw Deirdre asking, is there a European bank that might grandfather finance to all European countries for these transitions? We had actually Triodos Bank on the podcast uh, that, that admitted immediately that they're quite comfortable with organic, but not at all comfortable with regenerative transitions yet, but they're super interested to follow and actually have a regenerative money center now that has a website as well, which they didn't have when we interviewed them. Um, so there, there are banks looking at it. I know some German banks are looking at it, but it's still, they need 20, 30 years of data in some cases. So they need to be comfortable with these transitions and need to say, okay, you're going to take your grain farm from this, from A to B, and I know the premium, and I know you have an offtake agreement, agreement lined up, and so I can finance it because the newest things here in terms of transition finance are not going to come from banks. They're going to come from funds, private individuals, crowdfunding, crowd investing platforms, super interesting. A lot is happening there. Um, they're going to come from all of us trying to finance these transitions. And then when we have the data, uh, the big money, hopefully, will come. But we should definitely plan for that to make sure that we can basically tap into the larger money sources, which are green bonds, which are banks, which are uh, insurance companies, etc. Regenerative ag bond investment opportunities. Peter, great question. I know one, which was five times oversubscribed. So the short answer, at least from my side, but please correct me if I'm wrong, there isn't too much there yet. There's a lot of sustainable or renewable energy obviously happening on the bond market. Um, and the fact that Rizoma managed to do the first one now, I think is a great uh, moment. And I hope there will be many more that, that really put uh, this, this type of money to work. So far, there was one which was fully filled with Brazilian investors. And I know some investors tried to get in from outside and it wasn't possible. Another question, global impact investment space, interact. That's a very interesting question. What is the role gonna be of the EU versus the state versus the regions? Don't forget the regions in, in Europe, very important. I think it's gonna be, um, that's where the pain is felt. I mean, there were massive floods in Northern Italy, um, massive droughts in, in the Netherlands. I think this is gonna be in many cases tied to regional approaches and maybe connected to some European money or some state money, um, but don't expect uh, regeneration to be on, on any of the, uh, let's say, to-do lists of, of that. I, there's obviously a lot of interesting work happening in Brussels with the farm to fork, et cetera, but it could also be easily hijacked by some other forces. Um, so I think it's gonna be, in many cases, regional um, that feel the pain of the floods of droughts, et cetera, they're gonna act on this and, and get involved and hopefully uh, move things. I see an answer from Joe. Thank you very much. And uh, for Fanny, which is great. We need help to the public to understand the benefits. That's going to be an enormous task to 
uh, all of us, because we've been trained to think that all food is the same, um, if it's called the same. Um, we've been, I mean, somebody said on the podcast once, organic taught us a great job of looking at the label. Now we need to look beyond. Um, that's a massive, we need a lot of smart marketing and communication folks to, to do that. Um, Alan, this can be done through small local gardens. Thank you. What's this nutrient density do? It's the Bionutrient Food Association and it's called the Bionutrient Food Meter, but I will definitely put it in the show notes as I, I will copy this, Jeffrey, I will copy this question. Um, what are some of the best examples, that's already a plural, <laughs> of successful watershed scale regenerative projects? There are not too many is the short answer, uh, Charles. So I would definitely look at Common Land, who's doing a number of these or a number of their spin-offs, actually. Um, there is WWF, the Sustainable Landscape Finance Lab, where I interviewed Paul Chatterton, came out with an interesting research recently. Um, so there's some work around this. I mean, we've, we've interviewed a few people. I will put them in the show notes, but there are very, very few people looking at landscape size, unfortunately. I think this is going to be one of the big discussions we need to have. How do we get permaculture to a landscape scale? How do we get regenerative practices to thousands and thousands of hectares and how to figure out what to do where and why? Um, so there are not too many examples, at least not that I know that are uh, extremely successful. Um, Kuhn, you did a great interview. Thank you very much, Vincent. With the perennial fund, do you think that could work in Europe as well? Absolutely, yes. And I hope many people will start perennial funds, plural, because I think we need it that kind of skin in the game, transition finance for a lot of crops and a lot of regions. Again, there, I think we're gonna see a lot of, um, let's say experts that are really good at helping transition farmers, starting to also offer uh, finance for those farmers. Because in many cases, the business model for the consultants at the moment in the space is selling their time to farmers that are living on very small margins. So that's not a very easy business, but if you can also offer the finance and maybe the offtake agreements, which is something that Perennial Fund together with Pipeline Foods does, then you have a very interesting package. And again, coming back to how do we um, help farmers in that transition, a very interesting package, both finance, access to knowledge, which a lot of these consultants have, and access to markets. And then you have a winning combination. One of the two, one of the three is not enough. I think all three are key. And I hope to see many, many, many perennial funds. They're closing their round in the US, which is very small, um, unfortunately, but they're closing, which is great. And I hope to have them back soon to share some updates, but they should be hitting the ground running soon and, and hopefully we're going to learn a lot from that. But this kind of skin in the game, really partnering with the, with the farmer. When the farmer is making money, you're making money. When the farmer is not, you're not. And helping him or her through that transition, I think, is going to be crucial, especially in this phase where there's no easy access to other types of finance. Ah, great, Euron. I would absolutely love more info on that. I think they spawn off the company, if I remember correctly, but I don't remember the details. I answered that one. Uh, Alan. Definitely many farmers are opening up for tours, etc. Um, other income streams. I mean, tourism is a bit tricky, but uh, for instance, um, office spaces. Uh, so, I mean, there are many, many options to, to obviously use the land in different ways and basically stack business models on top of each other. What's the best way to connect to farmers? Go and have coffee and learn and listen, Mike. That would be my advice in any, in any circumstances, go and listen because there's so much to learn there. 
should regeneratively marketed? That's an endless discussion. I don't want to open Glenn, but um, there's definitely a lot of work being done on regenerative organic at the moment by Patagonia, Dr. Bronners, and, and their partners in Rodale. Um, I uh, don't know yet. I haven't figured out my opinion on should we label this in the label fatigue we have. Um, I think in some products it makes sense, and in some cases it, it gives the confidence to the market. In many others, it might not and may distract. They're doing very interesting work, and I hope to have Elizabeth, who's running it, um, on, on the podcast soon. But I also know a lot of people are very scared of other labels and other yes and no questions, like you are or you're not regenerative. And it's a journey and not a destination. And I mean, those kind of things are, are tricky. Um, I think I'm going to wrap it up because we're already two minutes over, and I want to make sure. Can you address the interface between certification, labeling, branding? That's one for another time. I will try to add something there, uh, Amin, but I think we're not gonna make it now. So unless there are any burning last questions, I would love to wrap it up. And thank you so much for your time. And for anybody that's still here after more than an hour, um, I will put as much as I can in the show notes, uh, which probably should be out by tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, and obviously also the recording, which feel free to share and share it wide. In and if you have any questions, you can go to the website where we put all the podcasts and obviously you can find out the course we did on YouTube and also via Gumroad. If you want to know more, find us on Twitter, Instagram, or reach me. I think you have all my, you all have my email address. Thank you so much. Have a great evening, day, wherever you are, and see you soon. Thanks, Kuhn. Bye. Thank you, Kuhn. Very good.